Good morning, everybody. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're going to take a look at verses 22 to 36 today. If you're really dialed in and you've really been following along each week, you're thinking, why in the world didn't you say Ephesians 4 or Ephesians 5? That's where we've been the last three weeks, and we've been in a series uh, entitled New Way of Living. Uh, and we'll continue on in that series uh, in the future, but we're going to kind of hit the pause button, and I'll explain why uh, in a moment. But I just want to give you a heads up for next week. Uh, next week, Dan Stewart is going to be here. And those of you who've been a part of the church for a while know Dan. Yeah. Dan is always, at least once a year we have Dan come speak. And when you see Dan next week, you need, to, you need to do something. You need to give him a big hug and say thank you. Uh, because Dan, many of you know, Dan was the pastor of our church during the last negotiation for our previous lease at Shasta. And he was key in negotiating a way that would allow us to get out at the end of this last lease to be able to move. So Dan's a big reason. Obviously, God worked through Dan, but Dan's a big reason that we were able to make the transition. So make sure that you, you just love all, all over he and Connie next week to make sure they really feel appreciated because I, I thank him all the time. Every time I talk to him, I say, thank you, Dan, for what you've done. So anyway, there, he's great, and you'll enjoy him next week. So we're in Luke chapter 4 uh, today because... Uh, we're going to pause in, the, in the, the series that we've been in, not because it's a bad series or, or we need to take a break from it, but because I know that there's a normal kind of rhythm that we fall into. I know that I've seen it in my own life, but we fall into it in, our, in following Jesus, in kind of doing the church thing, where what can happen over time is that we become so familiar with Jesus that we start to forget who he is. He just kind of becomes commonplace. And I know for me, what, what I have to do periodically is, if I'm reading in different portions of Scripture, I always go back to the Gospels, and I reintroduce myself to Jesus again for the first time. Kind of saying, okay, knowing that the Holy Spirit's at work in me, when I open the, the, the passages in the Gospels, what am I going to learn about Jesus that I haven't already known, or maybe I've forgotten, and, and re-engage again. Because if we don't do that, then what happens is that we just get into a routine, we forget that this is all about Jesus. It's about following him and learning from him and embracing him and embracing his forgiveness for his death on the cross. And if we lose that, then we lose the whole reason why we're church. And what happens is we just go through the motions. We can even read the Bible. We can give faith. We can even serve. But we just kind of get into this rut and this routine and forget what this is all about. So every once in a while, we kind of have to call a timeout and say, okay, let's remember who is Jesus because that is so important. So this morning, we want to do that. And because many times, if you're like all human beings, we forget things that are present. And even when they're gone, we don't realize they're gone because they become so common and familiar. When we were in Oregon, um, on our property, uh, as in most of Oregon, the church property, we had uh, quite a few trees. Anybody been to Oregon? They have just a few trees in that state. And one of the trees was 110 feet tall. Huge tree. Been there obviously for, obviously for a long time. But there were challenges with that tree because it had grown so big that the branches were always kind of growing into the street and they would impede power lines and the city would call us and say, hey, you need to trim it. And, and then in Oregon, they, they get a thing called rain. I know we don't know what that's like, but with the rain, lots of wind would come and so it would saturate the soil and so you would soil so you'd lose trees when the wind would come. And so uh, every time there was a big storm and wind would come in, we would get calls from the neighbors because they would literally hear the tree creaking as the wind blew through it. And so like, hey, you know, 100 foot, 110 foot, that can take out two houses. Could you please do something? So finally we removed it. Finally we went through the process. And I don't know if you've ever seen a 110 foot tree removed. It's a, quite a process. Watch him take off limbs, and then a guy gets all the way up to like 100 feet, maybe just below that, and he tops it, and he takes, it was impressive. I like stood, and we, like the staff, we were like watching what was going on. 
And so the next Sunday, when, when people came to church, because that tree has been there, as far as we know, forever, because we, we, it's lived longer than we have, there's a huge stump on part of the, right by the, the church. And, and so I'm thinking, man, people are going to come and go, wow, the tree's gone. And in Oregon, that can be offensive. You know, if a tree's gone, people get upset, right? But I'm not kidding. People came in and nobody said anything about the tree. And I'm like, how can you not know that the tree's gone? It's been there. It's like it blocks the sun. You never get to see the sun, even on a sunny day. And I remember going through our two services, and I got, I'm like, no one, hardly anyone said anything to the tree. And I, in fact, walked people out and said, look, is something missing? And like, finally, people are like, oh, is the tree gone? Yeah, the tree's gone. That's why there's a huge stump in the ground, and you can see the sun. And I was amazed. And maybe it's because they're Oregonians, and they're so used to trees, they don't know when one's gone or not. I don't know. But... To not know that a 110-foot tree is missing, it means that it's really become common. It's become familiar. You don't even know it's gone. And the tragedy is many times with Jesus, that's what happens. He becomes so familiar to us that we don't even acknowledge his presence in our life anymore. We just kind of do the church thing. And God has so much more for us. And that's why this morning I wanted to kind of take a time out and jump into Luke 4 and, and take a look at Jesus. And the passage we're going to look at, there's actually two stories that we're going to look at. And it's two different experiences, two different cities, two different groups of people who encountered the same Jesus but had two completely different experiences. And they describe, I think, where one side or the other that you and I end up landing on when it comes to Jesus. We either miss him or we embrace him. The first part we're going to look at is in Nazareth, and it's a group of people that was very familiar with Jesus because that was his hometown. And because of that, this familiarity that they had with him caused them not to be able to fully understand who he was and embrace him. And so I want to start with that and talk a little bit about how we sometimes are just like 2,000 years ago in Nazareth, how Jesus becomes so familiar that we miss him. So if you have your Bibles, let me start in verse 22, and I'll read to verse 30. So Jesus, after, before we get to verse 22, so Jesus had just stood up in the synagogue and he had opened the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he had read this famous passage about the Spirit of the Lord being on him and had, God had given him through the Spirit that this, it was his opportunity or his job to now uh, preach good news to the poor and, and, and to the oppressed and to the blind. And so he's making this huge statement and he's saying today what is about, what you've heard in, in the prophet Isaiah is about to come to pass through me. So pretty big statement. So then you get to verse 22, and it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. I've tell, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet none of the, one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Don't you love being in your hometown? The warm feelings, you know, the nostalgia, the history. They hated Jesus in a place that they should have loved him and embraced him. In his hometown, they missed him. And there's a number of reasons why this group of people seeing Jesus, the God of the universe in human flesh, right in front of them, completely missed him. 
And I want to look at their story because we need to reflect in our own life, is this me? Have I become like this? Have I missed who Jesus is in my life? So the first thing, look at verse 22. The first thing they did, the first thing that we do, is that we miss Jesus when we stereotype him. And what I mean by that is in, the, in, in verse 22, their response to Jesus after he makes this big proclamation, hey, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is pretty imp- important what's going on here. Their response is, isn't this Joseph's son? You know what they're saying? They're saying, we know who he is. We know he's the son of a carpenter. He's the son of a blue-collar worker. He's the son of a common guy. In fact, knowing the way culture works, he's probably going to become a carpenter. He's a carpenter, and he's just like his dad, and he comes from a common household, from a common lineage, and so we kind of know he's just Joseph's son. Think about it. They grew up in the same city. They knew Jesus when he was a, a little punk, you know? They saw him running around Nazareth. They knew who he was, and they're like, isn't this Joseph's son? We've grown up with him. We know who he is. And when you and I do that, what they were doing is they were just filling in the blanks of Jesus' life. They knew where his life started. They knew who he was, and therefore, at least they thought they knew who he was. So they just filled in the blanks. They wrote the end of the story, which was, if this is Joseph's son, then we know how it turns out. He'll be just like his dad. He'll be a carpenter just like him. He'll be common. He'll be blue-collar. There'll be nothing spectacular about him. Isn't this just Joseph's son? He was common to them. And that's why when he makes this big announcement, they they don't have a category for it because they know who he is. He's become so common to them that they can't see beyond and understand who he really is. There are things in life, there are times in life where you and I miss Jesus because he's become so familiar. He's like the tree that's there all the time, and then if it's gone, you don't even know it's gone because it's just part of the landscape of our lives. Jesus can become that way. We have a tendency to miss moments. Why? Because we write the script. We write the end of the story. We assume we know how it's going to turn out. Of all people, if you live in Southern California and you're a Dodger fan, you should know we always write the script for the end of Dodger games. If you've ever been to a Dodger game, you know the way the L.A. crowd works, right? Nobody gets there to the third inning, and they leave in the seventh, right? Because traffic coming in takes forever, and then you want to beat the traffic getting out, so you really only get about four innings. How many know what I'm talking about? If you haven't seen that, go to a Dodger game. You'll see that happen. And that happened back in 1988. Anybody remember 1988 World Series? Remember the Dodgers playing Oakland A's? Game one, same kind of scenarios unfolding. You know, people leave early when they think they know what's going to happen. The Dodgers were behind in the bottom of the ninth. And, and Eckersley, who was, was the ace for the A's, was on the mound. He was untouchable. And so people were typical Dodger fans. They're all streaming to the parking lot. You know, all the cars are getting filled. People are heading on their way. And then Tommy Lasorda, the manager, makes this crazy decision. He pulls Kurt Gibson off the bench, who hadn't played because the guy was injured in multiple areas. Bad back. His knee was killing him. And when he came to the plate, he was limping just to get there. And so if it wasn't bad enough, knowing the thing the Dodgers are going to lose, like you put Kurt Gibson up, now I'm really out of here, right? And so literally thousands of people were streaming out of the stadium until Kurt Gibson came up had a full count, and then ended up hitting a home run into the right field pavilion, and the Dodgers went on, and they won the game. It is recorded as probably one of the greatest moments in baseball history. And there are story after story after story that people came back, and there are thousands of people saying, I wish I would have stayed. I thought they were going to lose. In fact, some people tried to rush back to the stadium. They couldn't get back in. Because they heard the roar in the, in the parking lot and knew that something amazing had happened. But because they had already figured out in their mind, we know how it's going to end. They got their ace on the mound. The Dodgers are down. Might as well get an early start and get home. And they missed it. The danger for you and I is that we become so familiar with Jesus, you and I just assume we know how Jesus is working in our life. 
We know what Jesus would do in this situation. Why? Because I've been in church for a long time. I've read the Gospels. I've, I'm familiar. I'm, I'm kind of, a, you wouldn't say it, but I'm an expert. I kind of got this church thing down. That's where we, we get into a danger zone where we become so familiar. We're not listening to Jesus through his spirit anymore and know how to respond in situations in our life. And there's a second thing. If you go on in the story, verse 23, we also miss Jesus when cynicism replaces belief. So Jesus quotes uh, to them what they were saying and what he's heard them say, and that is, he says, they said, do, uh, uh, do here in your hometowns, this is what people are saying, what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Very important word. Jesus says to them, we know, I know what you're saying. Do hear what we heard you did. Not what we know you did or what you did, but what we heard. There's, the, there's that questioning in that like, okay, yeah, we heard, we've heard rumblings that, yeah, there's some pretty amazing stuff that might be happening around, but we've only heard it and I don't know if we really believe it. So why don't you do it for us right now to kind of prove it. There's an underlying cynicism that's there that has crept in. They're already kind of cocked the opposite way of like, no, I'm not going to believe this is who he, he says he is. Now, you and I would never say, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm cynical towards the author of my faith. We wouldn't say that, but it slips into our life. See, when, when we're younger, there's this amazing experience that we have as children. We, we have innocence, and we have this amazing capacity to have faith and to believe beyond the jaded, cynical life that we become in, living in as adults. Things go wrong in life. Maybe something doesn't turn out the way we want it to. Maybe we pray and God doesn't answer our prayer according to what we think he should do. And so we become disappointed with God. And because of that, we kind of become jaded. And so it's like, yeah, I've heard that you've done great things for other people, but what have you done for me lately? That's kind of the attitude. There's a reason that Jesus over and over in the gospel says, if you want to embrace the kingdom, if you really want to know who I am, you have to approach me like a child. Because if you approach me like an adult, you'll be so cynical, you won't even see my power show up in your life. And there's something we lose from our childhood. Can you remember when you were a kid? Remember, I know when I was young, it's usually directed towards dads, but when, when you're young, you have this picture of your dad that your dad is like indestructible. Anybody remember that? It's like when you're young, he can do anything. And, and because of that, you have this faith that when something goes wrong, dad will always take care of it. I remember when I was growing up, I looked at my dad, and then when I finally grew up and, and like really grew up, I looked at my dad, and I looked down at my dad, who's like 5'8", 135 pounds, and I'm 6'2", and I'm like, wow, you were a giant to me before, but, but now I grew up, and, and we lose something in that. I remember when Courtney and Jordan were really young, and then they got smart, and I hated it. But when they were really young, they thought that I could do anything. And I still am. When something goes wrong in the house, I fix it or try to fix it. And if not, I call a professional who can fix it. But when, when they were younger, dad could fix anything. I mean, there are times when a plate hits the ground and shatters into a thousand pieces. And Courtney or Jordan said, dad can fix it. I'm like, oh, please believe, please believe. Keep that innocence. And that there's something. It's not that we have false faith that somehow God can't come through. But it's the innocence of a child that is required for us in understanding who Jesus is. And when we lose that, we lose out on who Jesus is. Because what we do is that we're always asking him to jump through our hoops. We're always saying, you have to prove yourself. And by the way, God doesn't play that game. He does not play that game. If you and I create hoops and say, okay, if you jump through these hoops, then you're God. He doesn't do that because he's bigger than the hoops. And he works according to his plan, not according to what we tell him to do. Because he's not a genie in the sky. He's the God of the universe. And so we can't allow that cynicism, cynicism to come in. And then look at the third thing going on, verse 24 to 27. This one is re really kind of, if Jesus was going to offend anybody in Nazareth, this is what really got him. And that is that we miss Jesus when we think we are insiders. 
So the reason they couldn't see Jesus is because Jesus said two things that were highly offensive to the Jewish people in Nazareth. And that was this. He, he told their history of two stories that a prophet of God went outside of Israel to help somebody while not helping anybody in Israel. He went to the outsider before he went to the insider. Elijah did it with a, with a widow in Zarephath, and Elisha did it with a, with a, a ruler or, or a leader named uh, Naaman in Syria, or Syrian, and healed him of leprosy while people in, or in Israel had leprosy and didn't get healed. Jesus is saying to them, listen, you're so comfortable in your insider kind of status that you can't even see who I am. You become so comfortable with the surroundings and that you think you know it all because you're an insider. You can't even see the author of your faith standing in front of you. That's how blind they had become because they were insiders, because they had the inside so much that they couldn't even see Jesus. And I think what the, the best term that I think we can apply to us in modern day of what they were experiencing is a term called entitlement. Where we are, we've maybe known Jesus or followed the Lord or tried to be a Christian for a period of time and that we become comfortable and because of that there's a sense of entitlement that we kind of, I know it, I get it, I understand it. I'm kind of at this level, I'm not at that level like the outsiders or like the poor people who don't know Jesus. And we kind of become arrogant. And then we forget and we don't appreciate who Jesus is in our life. We don't appreciate his grace and his mercy. We don't appreciate the cross and your why. I got that, I already did that kind of understand that. I already, I already prayed the prayer. I already belonged to Jesus. And so it's kind of this insider, and we, we lose that. When, when I was a kid, I think I've shared before, we, we went to a, a family camp in Texas. In fact, my, my sister and her husband and, and their daughter are here, and, and Renee will remember this. But it was a two-week family camp in Texas, and, and the coolest part of the whole thing, even though Texas is pretty cool, wasn't going to Texas. It was the first night we went up to the snack bar to, to get something, and when my dad went to pay for our food, the person behind the counter said, oh, no, no, you guys don't pay. You're the guest speaker for the next two weeks, and so anything that your kids want is free. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? That's like Disneyland, birthday, you know, Christmas, like all at once. I was like, are you kidding? This is like heaven. And so the first couple of days, you go up and you're kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm John Amstutz Jr., the son of the speaker. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever you want, you know. And then like the third day, you're like, that you just walk in like, oh, yeah, we know who you are. And then, well, the second week, I realized what an advantage I had. And uh, they like to play a lot of horseshoes in Texas, especially at camp. And I was terrible at horseshoes, but everybody was betting on horseshoes. You'd bet like a candy bar or a Coke or whatever, you know. So I'm like, I can do this because I can't lose. Because if I lose, it's free. So sure enough, I'm betting and I'm losing left and right. And I'm going over to the snack bar. I'm like, I need a Coke. I need a Snicker bar. You know, I lost again. And so I'm like, and so my friends are like blown away. Like, wow, you can get anything for free. I'm like, yeah, isn't this amazing? Until my dad found out. And then he pulled me aside. He goes, what are you doing? I said, well, it's free. He said, yeah, it's free for you. It's not free for your friends. It's not free for the whole camp. And then he, he, he pulls money out of his pocket. He said, now listen, he goes, you're going to go back over to the snack bar. And you're going to apologize for all the, mon- all the things that you've taken that weren't yours. And then you're going to, with his money, you're going to pay for it. Oh, it was so humiliating. It's like the party was over. Because then you walk up, and now they really know who you are. You're the kid that was stealing from them to bet on horseshoes. <laughs> it was like, well, in, the, in that mind, like, hey, I deserve this. Why? Because my dad's the speaker, so I get everything for free. That's like the ultimate entitlement, the ultimate insider, And if you and I become that way, we lose a sense of awe of who Jesus is. We've got it. We understand it. We're the insider, and we miss. We miss who he is in our life. And then there's a fourth thing before we move on to a more positive story of what happens when Jesus goes to Capernaum. 
But we also miss Jesus, and this is where it leads to when we allow our pride to blind us. So it says in verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Jesus had highly offended them. Why would he offend them? Usually offense, nine times out of ten, comes as a result of pride. Because when somebody says something that you don't like, even if it's the truth and you don't want to hear it, your pride rises up inside of you and says, how dare you say that about me? Even if you know it's true. Anybody want to admit that's true? I know it is for me. I don't want to admit that you're right. And my pride does everything to keep me blind to the reality of the truth that's right in front of me. Jesus was speaking truth. He was reciting their own history to them. He's saying, you don't even see the God of the universe standing in front of you. And their pride was so strong within them. What did they do? They marched him outside the city because they wanted to kill him because their pride wouldn't let them fully embrace him because they couldn't possibly let Joseph's son, this guy that they knew that they grew up with, be somebody that knew something more than they did. And so their pride wouldn't allow them. There are other, I have markers in my life where key influencers and leaders in my life have sat down with me and said things to me that I did not want to hear and didn't like hearing. In fact, and I'll tell you, and I reacted with pride. Two times specifically, I know that I sat down with key leaders in my life that God was using, but at the time I couldn't see it. All I could see was their humanity. And they said things to me about what I was learning in terms of ministry and leadership. And the things they said to me, I was so upset because I thought, how dare you say that about me? How dare you think that ill of me that I would do that? And then the Holy Spirit starts to work. And you walk away from the moment. And God starts to say, yeah, but you know what? Your pride won't let you see. They're right. And isn't it always like God to use the person you don't want to hear it from, right? The person who, who's pushing in on areas of your life and kind of you're struggling with, and God says, I'm going to use them. And when we experience it, that, what keeps us from really changing? So many times it's our pride because we won't let it go. When we are humble, the truth comes in like a flood. When we're prideful, we put the dam up in front and we don't let it penetrate. And that's what happened to those in Nazareth. That's why they couldn't see Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus walking in here today and I hand him the scriptures and say, okay, you take over. And then he reads really some really offensive passage. Are we going to get up and walk out? Or are we going to go, yeah, Jesus, I need to embrace that. Some of us might get up and walk out and say, who is this joker, right? But that's, that's how Jesus comes into our life. That's how we embrace him. We have to let our pride go. So that's the bad side of things. That's the negative response to Jesus. But then, if we're really going to know who Jesus is, if we're really going to understand who he is in our life, then what begins to happen is we respond differently like they respond differently in Capernaum when Jesus goes there. So he leaves Nazareth. So we pick up the, the, the story in verse 31. It says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in verse 35, Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. Do you see the difference? Two completely different responses. Two completely different things that Jesus did because what was different? Did Jesus somehow change himself between Nazareth and the Capernaum? No, it was the difference in the people. The people in Nazareth couldn't respond to him. The people in Capernaum were leaning in the moment he walked in the door. And the result was incredibly different. 
And for you and I to learn from their, their example for us in Capernaum means there's three things that I want to highlight that they did that we should do as well. And the first one is in verse 31, really verse 32. And that is, if you and I are going to really understand Jesus, we're going to recognize him, then we have to recognize ultimately his authority in our life. It says right off the bat in verse 32 that they were amazed at his teaching. Why were they amazed? Because he had great illustrations and he told great stories and he was really funny. And no, because he had authority. His message had authority. What does that mean? That means that Jesus had a weight to him that nobody else had. Now, these were people who had spiritual leaders. They had the religious leaders. They had the Pharisees. They had the teachers of the law who would speak, who would read from the book of Isaiah, who would share the truth of God. Yet, compared to Jesus, they didn't have any weight. In fact, for most of them, people, it's like, wah, 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 wah. You know, it's like peanuts. Seriously, compared to Jesus, it's like, this guy has authority. When he speaks, there's this weight to him that nobody else has. And immediately they identified, same Jesus, different context, different people, and they were responding to him because there was a weight that he had that they had yet to see. There's authority. When somebody has an authority about them, you and I have a tendency to obey them more than we don't. How many know that's true? Anybody ever been pulled over before? Right? When, when you run a stop sign or you go a little too fast or you make an illegal lane change and those red lights start flashing in your rearview mirror. Now, most normal people, and all of us are normal in this room, we pull over, right? It's a couple crazy people who don't. But you pull over. Why? Because the officer in that vehicle or on that motorcycle carries a badge and they carry a gun and then they carry the authority of the agency that they represent. And so you respect that authority, therefore you pull over and you respond to the officer, whether you like it or not, right? That's authority. Because when that officer speaks, you need to listen. It's, 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 what, it's the difference between no authority and no respect and ultimately respecting somebody's authority. Periodically, uh, I go out and walks and runs around in our neighborhood, and a few months ago I was out for a walk, and um, I came in this one area where... Uh, you know, when you're out walking in your neighborhood, you pass people that you see and you know and you say hi to familiar faces. And if you're running, you don't like sit, stop and have a long conversation. But you kind of, you know, you acknowledge, you kind of give them the head nod, that kind of thing. And there was this one guy I passed all the time, and he was always walking or running with his little dog. And so I'd say hi to him, and, I'd, and we'd kind of go on our way. And so when I came to this area, and there was this dog who was, um, the leash had been wrapped around this pole in the ground. It was kind of off the side of the, the street and off the path a bit. And it was barking like, out of control, like almost vicious barking, and there's nobody around, and so I'm like looking around, and it was right near a little, like a dry uh, creek bed, and so I, I thought, okay, there's some bushes, maybe the owner just tied the, the dog up and just went for a little walk somewhere, and so I just need to make sure, so I went down into the bushes and started calling for somebody to see if someone was there, and didn't hear anything, and I walked up a little ways away the other direction, started calling, nobody, it's like this vortex of lack of humanity, it was strange, all these people were walking, no one's there, and so I'm like, this is weird. So finally some people started walking by, and I'm standing there. This dog's like going ballistic. It's like vicious. And so I asked people, I stopped and said, is this your dog? Or, you know, no, I've never seen that dog before. And for like five or ten minutes, three or four people go by. And so I thought, there's something not right. I mean, someone could be going for a walk down, down the riverbed, and they could be injured. This could be their dog. So I called 911. I thought, I'm going to find out if, if this is okay. So I call 911, and about five or ten minutes later, CMPD uh, pulls up. And so he gets out, the officer gets out of the car, standing, we're talking. I'm like, I found this dog. I don't know. And we get close to the dog. The start, dog starts growling and barking again. So we're kind of standing there, and way down the street, this guy that I'd always seen kind of walking his little dog, he's kind of walking along, and then... He sees me, and then he sees the police officer standing next to me, and all of a sudden, he breaks out in a full-on sprint. 
and he starts yelling. He's like, it's my dog. It's my dog. It's my dog. He, I think he put like two and two together. There's that guy I know who runs by me. There's that police officer. And my dog's probably right there. And he's probably going to take my dog. And so the guy comes running up and he's like super apologetic. Now the officer was a little bit on the rude side. I have to just tell you, he wasn't really nice to the guy. I mean, right out of the gate, he goes, you're an idiot. That was the first thing out of his mouth. Like that may be true, but there's a better way to say it. Okay. And so the guy goes on to explain. He's so apologetic to the officer. He said, listen, this dog is 16 years old. And so when I go for a walk with my dogs, I leave him here so I can go longer with the dog. This dog was two years old. And he looks at him again. He goes, you're an idiot. He said, leave the 16-year-old dog at home and then go for a walk with a two-year-old dog. He said, if I see this dog tied up here again, we're going to confiscate it and you'll lose your dog. And he was like so apologetic. He was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And so and then I, I, I left and the officer caught up to me and Again, reiterated, he was an idiot. I said, okay, I got the point. He's an idiot, you know. And he goes, if you ever see it again, call us. And I got it. But it was interesting to see as he saw me, he didn't start running. But when he saw the officer, he started running. Why would he do that? I didn't have authority. But the guy with the uniform, the gun, and the badge next to me had authority. And therefore, it required a different response. Now, the good news is Jesus doesn't show up in your life with a badge and a gun and a uniform. Okay. He shows up in our life in a way that in order for us to truly be transformed, in order for us to truly experience who he is, we have to have respect and in respecting his authority so that we actually obey, that we do what he says. Because why? He carries more weight than anyone. Anyone in human history, anyone in our lives, he carries that kind of weight and that authority. That's why when he speaks, and he still speaks through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, if you said yes to Jesus, and through the scriptures, he tell, we, we're told his story, he speaks to us today, but how do we respond? Is it just nice historical stories that we read off the page of scripture, or do they come alive, and do they penetrate our souls, and do they challenge us once again to do what Jesus has asked us to do, to follow him, to be obedient, there's a second thing that you and I can understand about recognizing Jesus, and that is in verse 33 and 34, and that is not only do we recognize who he is and his authority, but we recognize his identity. We actually recognize who he is. So in verses 33 and 34, you'll see that in the story, it's amazing how God works. Who's the first one to recognize who Jesus is? It's a demon. It's an evil spirit. Jesus walks in, and through this man who's demon-possessed, a demon speaks and says, I know who you are. I know who you are. And he identifies Jesus. And he actually has, he starts off, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, the town that wouldn't respect him. He calls him and he says, you're the Holy One of God. I know you are. And then there's fear, like, what are you going to do to us? What are you going to do to me? He acknowledges that. And obviously, God is amazing. Through the mouth of a man who's possessed by a demon, believe it or not, the demon was evangelizing. He was. He was, de- he was testifying who Jesus was. So everybody who was there in Capernaum knew who Jesus was. Why? Because some evangelist came to town? No, because a demon spoke through a man he was possessing. And then as you read on in the story, what happens is Jesus sets that man free. Even the demon understood Jesus' true identity. The demon could see what people in Nazareth couldn't see. Are we that way today that a demon can see what we can't see? And we're human? And Jesus came to humans as human so that he could demonstrate for us what God looks like, that he could die on the cross for us. He could provide a way to be reconciled back to God. He could have power over death so we could be with God forever and be secured in that. Do we miss that? And the demons get that? We have to be able to understand who he is. When we understand who he is, it changes everything. 
It's, it's that, like for some of us, maybe you remember that moment in your life where you actually came to Jesus and you knew who he was and you experienced it. It's like, whoa, it blew you away. This, it's this sense of awe of who he is, that Jesus revealed himself to you and somehow over time you, you've lost that. It's when, we, again, the authority and the identity thing are, are tied together because when we know who Jesus is, then we respect his authority. We have to know who he is. The first wedding that I ever did, I, I tell couples that I get into premarital counseling with and, and we're going to do the ceremony, I usually will tell them just so that it kind of helps them to kind of relax because I'll tell you, most couples, especially the bride, they stress out big time about, not about the marriage, but about the wedding, right? It's all the details. And so I usually tell the story, and it was the story of the first wedding I ever did. I was on staff with Dennis Easter out in Ventura, and a couple came to the church and said, hey, we want to get married. And Dennis came into my office and said, here's your first shot. Hand them over to you. I'm like, oh, man. So he goes, okay, you're going to walk them through counseling. You're going to do the ceremony. You're going to do the whole thing. I'm like, okay. So I walked a couple through counseling, got to the wedding day, got there, and, and they all, you know, certain times you're here for this picture, that, and everything. Well, the groom was supposed to be here like at least an hour, an hour and a half before the wedding. He showed up an hour late for the start of the wedding. So he was two and a half hours late. So he comes walking in with all his buddies, and they're drunk. Not a good thing. If you're planning on getting married, don't do this. This is what you don't do. So he comes walking in, and meanwhile, for that hour, I've got 150 of their guests in, our, in the church with no air conditioning, and it's really hot, and I'm trying to, like, hey, every, every 20 minutes I'm coming out, well, we have some technical difficulties. I'm trying to, like, smoke in mirrors, you know, just try to keep them from getting angry. Finally, he shows up, and everyone's mad, and he comes in the back, and of course, the, her, the bride, she's furious, and she's in tears, and it's just chaos in the nursery area behind kind of where the sanctuary was, and it's just like, I'm, like, trying to, you know, like herding cats. You know, you're like, it's impossible. There's no way it's going to happen. So people are emotional. There's tears there anything. And, and the dad just starts going off on me. He's like, why can't you control this? And then he's yelling at his future son-in-law and he's getting mad. And he's just everything. So then Dennis Easter walks in because Dennis was kind of sitting in the back to watch how I did on my first wedding. So some of you know who Dennis Easter is. When Dennis walks in the room, you usually give him respect. Well, Dennis walked in, and this family, and most people, most of them did, but the father of the bride didn't know who he was. So Dennis steps in between me and the, and the dad and just says, hey, listen, chill out, man. He said, relax. And the guy's just screaming at Dennis. Now I'm like, oh, whoa, this is, I'm backing away. Because Dennis, you don't mess with him. And so he's kind of in Dennis's face, and Dennis is kind of setting him straight and saying, listen, you need to stop. And so finally the guy, you know, as Dennis is walking out, takes one last shot, like, I don't care who you say you are, blah, 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 blah. And Dennis didn't even tell him who he was. And then he walks out, and the rest of the family all huddles around the father of the bride and says, do you know who that was? He goes, I don't care who it was. He goes, that's the pastor of the church. And Dennis, by the way, said on the way out, he says, if you don't be quiet, I'm going to kick you out of my church. And they said, that's the pastor. He can actually do that. You better shut up. And then it was funny, the father of the bride, when he realized that, he goes, oh, Everything changed. I'm like, thank you, Dennis. You saved my life. Now he actually would listen to me because he knew that Dennis was the pastor. He was the one that was in charge. And because of that, there was this whole different level of respect because he knew who he was. Jesus has that kind of level and then some of respect in our life. And that's why it's so important to go back to the Gospels and remind ourselves who they are. If even a demon acknowledges the identity of Jesus and submits to his authority, then we as human beings all the more should identify who Jesus is and submit to his authority in our life, to know who he really is in our life. And then there's a final, a final point that I'll touch on, and then in a moment we'll, we'll take communion together and the worship team will, will join us. 
But the final thing in verse 35 and 36 is now we also, to recognize Jesus, we have to recognize his power. <clears throat> so it says, you know, that obviously, so Jesus cast the demon out, demonstrates his power, and then people are in awe and they're amazed. Why? He said that he has power and authority that we have yet to experience. We haven't seen this. Because through this, this encounter with the demon-possessed man and through what the, 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 what the demon says through the man, they're like getting the picture who Jesus is. They're recognizing him. And because of that, they recognize that Jesus has power that they haven't seen. They're experiencing something they haven't seen before. And so he's got their attention. And I think that is so important. If you read through the gospel, so many times you see the miraculous happen. And, and the, one of the reasons is because Jesus is demonstrating who he is for people to see. People who will be receptive. Because many people say, well, hey, why don't you just go back to Nazareth and do the same thing? Why don't you just go back there and just cast out a demon and then they'll believe? No. Go to Luke 16. In Luke 16, you don't have to do it right now, but Luke 16, there's a story. A man basically says, hey, well, if someone comes back from the dead and tells them who Jesus is, then they'll believe. And they said, nope. Won't work. By the way, somebody did do that. His name's Jesus. And people still don't believe. And so it's not about that. It's, it's, it's us. It's our receptiveness to who Jesus is in our life that determines if we really know him if we really acknowledge him, if we really engage him, if we really follow him. One of the passages of Scripture I want to read to you in a moment that reminds us who Jesus is. Probably one of the best passages of Scripture of all time that in a short, kind of concise way, Paul says, let me unload on you who Jesus is to get the picture. And I'll go back to this passage over and over and over again if I need a little bit of correction on who Jesus is. I want to read to you, this is actually out of a paraphrase that Eugene Peterson wrote called The Message. Um, and it's, I like this particular portion of scripture where he, I think, captures what the Apostle Paul was communicating about Jesus. But it's written in a very common, easy to understand language. So this is what it says about Jesus. It says, we look at this son and see the God who we cannot see. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people, things, animals, and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross." whoa, that's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. That's the Jesus that we get to personally know. That's the Jesus that reconciles us back to God. That's the Jesus that saves our soul. That's the Jesus that puts his spirit inside us and says, now go live like me. That's incredible. I never want to become too familiar with that Jesus. I never want him to become commonplace. I never want him to fade into the landscape of my life and me miss him completely. That's why we have to have these moments where we reset ourselves and say, okay, Jesus, remind me again who you are. Because when we know his power and his authority and his identity, it changes the way we live. We're different people. 
And that's when we walk into situations, and without saying a word, people look at us and say, there's something unique about you. There's something different. And if they know an inkling of who Jesus is, then they think, you are probably a Christian in a positive way, not a negative way, because you kind of act like I think Jesus would act. That's how we should live our lives. I'm going to ask you if you'd close your eyes. The worship team is, is going to join us, and I'm having you close our eyes for just a few moments before we receive communion so that you're not distracted by, by me or what's going on up here and transitioning, but I want you to really focus in on what Jesus is speaking to you by his spirit today. Because the, the truth is that when you continue to read through the narrative of scripture, you get through the gospels, you get to the book of Acts, Jesus goes back after his resurrection to be with God the Father. And then after he goes, he sends his spirit into the world to live inside of us. That's Acts chapter 2. Which means that Jesus is present in our lives and Jesus is present in the world because his spirit is present. And so that means two very important things. You're here today and you have in your life made a decision or a commitment to give your life to Jesus. Because of that, Jesus has sent his spirit to live inside of you and his spirit is working in you and on you to constantly remind you of who Jesus is. He reminds you that he is the one who's given his life for you, who took the heap of sin that you committed in your lifetime and in a moment took all of it, every last bit of it, past, present, future. And when he died on the cross, he took it on himself. The Holy Spirit reminds us that's who Jesus is. And he constantly reminds us of If that's true of who Jesus is, that he gave his life for you, then we should give our lives for others. But maybe you've never been to that place in your life where you know, you know what, I'm I'm all in. I'm getting a clearer picture of who Jesus is, and so I want to make a commitment today that I'm going to choose to follow him, to learn more about him, to submit my life to him. I've never done that. If that's you right now, guess what? The Holy Spirit may not live inside of you yet, but he's working on you right now because he's present. And he's in a, in a very gentle, firm way. He's prodding and he's poking and he's leading and he's pushing because he loves you, because Jesus loves you. And he wants you to know Jesus in a personal, dynamic way that will change your life forever. If that's you today, you have yet come to that moment in your life where you said, I'm all in. I'm going to leave the life that I used to live, the way of doing it my way, the way of being the God of my own life, and now choosing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the God of all. Jesus is the God of the universe and human flesh that you choose to embrace him. I'm going to tell you right now you can do that. Because in a moment, in a moment, you're going to, as the worship team leads us in another song, you're going to be able to go to, there's four different stations around the sanctuary, around this auditorium that have communion set up, and, and And those elements that are present there are the cup and the bread. And those are symbols that Jesus used 2,000 years ago to point to his sacrifice, his death for us. And he said this, when he broke the bread and he took the cup with his first disciples, he said something very important. He said, do this to remember me. And the reason Jesus would say that is because he knows we will forget. And maybe for some for the first time you are going to acknowledge and know how much Jesus loves you 
by turning your life over to him and embracing his sacrifice for your sin so that you can once again be right with God, which is how you were created to live. But for the rest of us, as you, in a moment, you take that communion. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember as though it's the first time. Allow Jesus to reintroduce himself to you so that when you leave this place today, you don't go on with the normal routine of life, the normal Sunday afternoon routine, which has a tendency to forget the impact of what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Lord Jesus, we know that you're here by your Spirit. We pray as we remember you in these next few moments, as we acknowledge your sacrifice, your death on the cross, which, which is amazing. The only God that ever has existed, if there is any other gods, and we know that you are the only God, but the only God that chose to take on human flesh, not to expect us to come and earn our way to you, but you loved us so much that you came and you became human to be with us. That's you, Jesus. Help us to remember today that you are with us, that you love us, that you call us to know you in a dynamic, personal, powerful way that changes everything about us. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you would reintroduce yourself to us today in your powerful name.